Let's be honest, realtors face an ever-changing industry. With emerging tech, growing trends, and a booming market, it's vital to keep up. Join me, Gilbert Gonzalez, CEO for the San Antonio Board of Realtors, as I get real with experts on what realtors need to know in this industry. It's time to get real. Today I'm talking with Pete Alaniste, Executive Director for the San Antonio Housing Trust, who is an expert on the subject of fair housing in our city. So welcome, Pete. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get to uh, the Housing Trust? Oh my gosh, it's definitely been a long journey. Uh, I started with the city of San Antonio. Um, It must have been about, about 19, 20 years ago. Uh, started out in uh, the their community development department, working on community development items, uh, working with the community development block grant program, the home investment partnership program, the neighborhood stabilization program, the section 108 program. So if it was a HUD federal program that the city of San Antonio was receiving, I was definitely a, a part of that. Uh, it was definitely eye-opening. Um, it's where I kind of had, uh, a, you know, I, I, I cut my teeth uh, in the community development world, um, worked with a lot of affordable housing projects early on, and uh, eventually progressed into uh, uh, overseeing uh, the city's CDBG home uh, programs, um, and finally went to go work in the Center City Development and Operations Department as their real estate administrator. And uh, ended up over here as the executive director of the San Antonio Housing Trust. So happy to be here and um, feel we're doing some great work and we had a lot more great work to come. I feel like a lot of people don't know what a housing trust is. Can you take a second to explain what a housing trust does? Yeah, sure. Um, well, first, the San Antonio Housing Trust is a, a collection of four entities, right? The, the housing trust itself is a fund. It's a, it's a $10 million trust fund that was established back in the late 80s. Um, the, the Housing Trust Foundation, which is the second entity, um, is a 501c3 nonprofit, a charitable entity that was created in 1990 that also houses our staff and oversees all the operations of the trust. Uh, we also have a finance corporation that was created in 1997. Uh, which has the sole purpose of issuing revenue bonds in support of low-income housing tax credit projects, uh, which provide affordable housing units in San Antonio in accordance with state law. Um, And then we also have a public facility corporation, which was created to acquire, construct, rehab, renovate, repair, place in service affordable housing in accordance with state law. And uh, so these four entities, which were kind of added on to, to the housing trust over time, uh, end up being what people know as the San Antonio Housing Trust. So in 1988, the city of San Antonio came to create the San Antonio Housing Trust. Would you say there was something that led to its creation? The city was ahead of its time in creating it? Well, I, I think the original intent of the San Antonio Housing Trust was to use interest revenues from this newly established $10 million corpus. I think there was a, if, if I'm remembering my history, uh, uh, some sort of Time Warner uh, type of, of revenue contract that, that's where the $10 million was sourced. And so 
council at the time decided to establish this, this corpus. And you, you got to remember that uh, a lot changed uh, since back in the late 80s. You know, back then, interest on a $10 million fund was probably yielding something like 8 to 10% a year. You know, 800,000 million bucks a year because interest rates were much higher back in, in the late 80s, um, you know, allowed you to do much more. Today, you know, interest rates are close to zero, right? They're, we're yielding probably about a, a quarter of a percent um, on the actual corpus today. So, you know, over the last 40 years, the cost of affordable housing and the demand for affordable housing due to sheer population growth and interest wage inequalities has skyrocketed. And this need uh, is, is a full-blown crisis and, and at all income levels but more especially those at lower income. So it's been very challenging for the Housing Trust through its uh, original intent and mission to kind of use interest revenues um, to be able to support low-income housing. The revenues just aren't being produced there today through the Housing Trust alone. So, you, you know, you've mentioned affordable housing and that it's in a crisis. When you think of affordable housing, what does that look like to you? Is that minimum wage, middle income earners, what, how do you define affordable housing? And I know this is a part of one of the other projects you're on with this, the Mayor's Housing Task Force, but in general, this seems to be an ongoing question. What is affordable housing? Well, that, that's actually pretty convenient um, timing on that question. Um, yesterday, the City's Housing Commission, which um, as the Executive Director of the Housing Trust, I sit on that commission, uh, we voted to make a recommendation to the mayor's city council to establish a definition of affordable housing. And, uh, you know, we have a statement that uh, we are issuing to the mayor and council, and essentially what that says is that for rental programs and rental development, uh, we consider a project affordable if that project uh, is geared primarily for persons that are below 60% of the area median income. And for home buying and single family home ownership programs, um, that would be under 120% of the area median income. So the, that recommendation is going to be considered by council. It's going to be considered through the strategic housing implementation plan process, which the city of San Antonio is undertaking. Um, to hopefully develop a strategy on how we can address some of the issues that we have here in San Antonio within our housing system. So I noticed as part of your mission, it is to provide additional and continuing housing opportunities for low and moderate income families. And you mentioned, um, I think you said 60% AMI. Is that about 700? You have to be able to afford $700 a month to live somewhere and... 120 is about 1600 to live somewhere? Um, yeah, there is a HUD every year comes out with their annual projections for, uh, for the San Antonio area on what those various percentages are of the area median income. Um, I believe for a family of four, um, it, which came out April 1st this year, the dollar amount for that household income for 100%, which is the median income, um, is about $74,000. Um, you would take 60% of that, um, and that would be the 60% uh, of area median income. I, unfortunately, I don't have the table in front of me, um, but that information is definitely available on uh, HUD's website, and um, 
you know, we can definitely uh, uh, share that with uh, uh, your um, with your audience here uh, after the show. I can definitely send that to you. Okay. So, what does your organization do to help promote affordable housing in our community? You know, most recently, since the start of the COVID crisis, um, the collective trust entities have provided $6 million in support of the City of San Antonio's COVID-19 Emergency Housing Assistance Program, uh, resulting in mortgage and rental assistance to over 2,600 residents facing eviction or foreclosure. Last year, we issued $118 million in multifamily revenue bonds um, for four low-income housing tax credit deals. We closed financing on six new affordable multifamily housing developments, including the Majestic Ranch, the Pan American Apartments, um, the uh, Park at 3830, Greenlight North, the Markson, um, and the South Flores Loft. You know, when those are completed, they're going to provide a total of about 1,237 new units, including 917 units for residents that are less than 60% AMI. Last year, we opened six new apartments, uh, including the Salado at Redberry, the St. John's, the Stella, the Trails at Leon Creek, the Live at Westover Hills, which is a senior development, and Copper Point, and placed into production about 1,600 total units. 895 were for those residents at or below the 60% AMI level. We also recently adopted a new tenant protection policy that provides some additional rights for tenants that reside in properties that we invest in that are designed to foster more communication and resolution between tenant and landlords. And, you know, aside from this, as I mentioned, I, I, I personally sit on the city's housing commission. Um, we participate in peer-to-peer -peer discussions on impacts with other communities. Uh, facing similar challenges that we're facing here in San Antonio. Um, I work with the uh, the Successfully Aging and Living San Antonio, or the, the SALTA group, which is a, a group sponsored by the Area Foundation to address um, seniors and, and persons with disability issues. Um, and I'm the co-chair of the Real Estate and Development Work Group for the city's Strategic Housing Implementation Plan. So there's a lot in there, and uh, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a couple of follow-up questions and all of that. Would you, yeah. in in doing the research, would you describe yourself as a lending organization, a lending entity for for affordable housing, as opposed to you don't actually own any property? Someone will come to you and say, "We'd like to build a property and include affordable housing as a part of it." Is that a a good description, or would do y'all actually own properties like Saha, let's say? No, we, we, we own property. So okay. um, as, as part of our uh, housing trust and foundation entities, or the, tr the trust fund itself um, and our foundation, we deploy our funds through, uh, through grants and sometimes uh, very low interest loans to help with affordable housing needs. Through our public facility corporation, that's the entity where we own uh, most of our, our, our properties. And the reason why we own those properties is uh, we're partners with both nonprofit and for-profit developments in order to uh, create a public facility, which is tax exempt. Um, and that tax exemption, of course, lowers your operating expenses, uh, which also helps lowers uh, uh, the required rent necessary to make that project financially feasible. 
Um, and I can definitely go into a lot more detail, but, you know, we, we currently own uh, about 30 uh, properties here in San Antonio. Um, and the properties I talked about before, um, those six new apartment complexes that we opened last year, um, you know, those are all under our ownership. Now, we do have, um, you know, our development partners uh, primarily operate uh, the facility and they have a property management team, but we are technically the owners of the property. Now, the properties themselves, the um, a couple that you mentioned, they're not necessarily all 100% affordable housing, some of those multifamily units. Correct. Uh, I think very early on with the development of the PSC tool, the idea was to use that tool um, for mixed income housing um, and for economic development. I think that was the, 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 primary, the primary policy goals earlier on uh, when the program was created. Um, I think since then, uh, there's been a, a lot of changes uh, that our board has wanted to see in producing more affordable units. Uh, and so we're continuing down that track. I, I think we're going to be going through a, uh, a public engagement process here in the near future. There's some changes from the state level um, that are being considered to change the PFC program a little bit. So we have to know what the new laws that are going to be in place for public facility corporations for us to be able to start our public engagement process, we're going to have some new board members uh, coming on since uh, uh, Councilwoman Villagran and Councilwoman Gonzalez um, are term limited out. Um, they are part of our board, um, so we're going to have new board members. We are also going through a process of, uh, of a governance realignment to help unify uh, the board members across all four entities. Since those four entities were created at different times, essentially in different decades, um, you know, the governance structure is, is a little disjointed. Um, we have 11 board members on the trust and foundation board, and we have five council members on the PFC and the finance corporation board. So I, I technically have two sets of bosses. And uh, <laughs> if anybody knows, dealing with two sets of bosses is, is a little bit of a challenge. Um, but uh, this governance realignment is going to actually provide us with consistency across all those entities, and we are going to be bringing on about six new uh, board members from the community um, to also help with transparency and, and expertise. Um, and I think we're going to have a really good housing trust uh, uh, um, that the city can be proud of, you know, uh, uh, moving forward here after this summer once our governance realignment is complete. You know, so if somebody partners with y'all into going into a development, are there requirements on that entity once they um, enter into this partnership if they're going to receive the benefits of the tax break? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, you, of course we have uh, AMI requirements. Um, they have to be a certain level of affordability. Um, they have to uh, uh, achieve both rent and income restrictions, whereas some of the older deal structures that were put together didn't have certain rent and income restrictions because the law did not uh, specify that that had to be the case. From a policy standpoint, we went ahead and moved forward and said, no, we're going to put in place uh, rent and income restrictions in accordance by bedroom size with what HUD typically uh, um, uh, requires. Um, we have uh, uh, some of the revenues that are, are 
developed uh, or, or produced uh, through cash flow um, as part of a partnership. Since they are getting a tax exemption, we negotiate as much affordability in the deal as possible, but there's always uh, available revenue to be shared. And so we demand a share of that revenue to come back to the PSC um, so we can then use in other affordable housing projects and initiatives. And I'm going to be happy to talk to you about that probably here in a moment, about some of the awards that we just uh, uh, provided in back into the community. Um, we have the tenant protection policy, which is uh, providing some additional rights um, for tenants uh, that uh, that will, of course, uh, not only uh, uh, provide a, a little bit better uh, uh, transparency with respect to what sort of tenant selection policies that our partners uh, will have on how they select their tenants, but also on how they engage kind of in that everyday life, right? When there's an issue uh, concerning repair or if the tenants want to have a uh, organize or whatever the case may be, there's a little bit more flexibility that our policy provides those tenants um, as opposed to what is in the typical standard leases. So um, these are some of the protections that we have built in. Now, there is some criticism about that the tax breaks provide too much of a benefit um, and not enough affordable housing. How would you respond to that to explain that this is this is a part of what the future of affordable housing looks like. Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, our community does not have enough tools in its toolbox to be able to provide affordable housing strategically and with enough scale and with enough reduced barriers for us to be able to, uh, to do what we need to do to address the issue. We have um, this public facility corporation tool, um, which in the past has been utilized for you know, more economic development purposes, uh, along with some affordable housing. Um, but you know, there, we as a as a board, as a community, need to ask for more. Right? We need to be uh, um, uh, requesting more from our development community. And, you know, over the past uh, two years that I've been working here with the trust, some on an interim basis and more recently um, as they're permanent, you know, we've been making more strides to prove that we can keep pushing the line as far as being able to request uh, additional considerations, either financial or community-based returns. And so that's what we really look at. What is the overall community return? that this project is, is achieving. You look at something like the Friedrich, um, which has has not seen any sort of redevelopment over the past 30 years. Um, the, 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 the community on the east side said this is a priority for us. Projects have been proposed. They've come and gone over the last dozen years or so, at least that I've been involved with the city. We finally were able to make something work, and we're hopefully going to see uh, some demolition on the site uh, start uh, this summer, um, so we can actually see movement and redevelopment happen at the Friedrich, uh, which was something major that the Eastside community wanted. Um, so the tool is deployable in a lot of different ways. We typically use it for underutilized property and vacant land, so the existing property taxes that are being generated on that vacant land is typically pretty low anyway, 
So when we're taking, quote unquote, things off the tax rolls, it's vacant land, right? Or it's something that is so low in value. The community return of creating that, uh, that affordable housing or that economic driver has outweighed the, the, uh, the offset of property taxes that are on that site. So we're, we're, you know, of course, always trying to find ways that we can ask for more out of these developments, um, including lower income targeting, including tenant rights, including uh, ensuring we have low enough uh, 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 rent for Section 8 housing voucher holders. Um, so we are making uh, efforts to try to get more out of each deal. I want to transition over to the idea of tenant rights. April is Fair Housing Month, and this year marks the 53rd anniversary since the Fair Housing Act was signed into legislation. And there's been a lot of steps to fight and bring equality to housing. Um, I noticed that y'all just put out the Multifamily Program Resident Tenant Protection Policy, um, which seems pretty awesome. And one of those things is a source of income protection clause. Can you tell us a little bit about that clause? This, is it... Is there a problem where people are coming to properties and saying, I mean, some of your properties arguably are, are perfect examples of multi-use, right? You have people who don't need to be on Section 8, but then you have some who are. Um, is there discrimination against people with Section 8 vouchers? There, There is a difference between overt discrimination and covert discrimination. And unfortunately, uh, you know, discrimination takes a lot of different forms, right? It, it, in the fair housing world, you see on the transactional side of uh, uh, discrimination that's covert, right? Somebody doesn't want to sell a piece of property to somebody who's a minority or somebody who uh, has a person with disabilities. When we're talking about source of income discrimination, you know, having a, a a, a policy that's kind of hush, hush, wink, wink, we don't want those types of people here, um, is not a covert, um, or not an overt action, it's a covert action, right? It, it's something that is, is not spoken, it's hard to pinpoint, it's hard to identify. But what happens is the results are clear, right? You have folks who are going to different places, different communities, knocking on doors saying, hey, do you accept the voucher? Which is, um, by the way, this is, is, is dedicated income that the landlord can receive directly from the, vou the voucher entity. Uh, they, it, it lowers the risk of non-payment rent. And they're like, no, we don't accept the Section 8 voucher. And it's another way, honestly, of saying, no, we don't accept your kind here, right? We don't want you here. And unfortunately, it does exist. We know it exists. It, it, it's not something you definitely point because no one's going to say, hey, I'm discriminating against you, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, but it's something that is covert. It's something that, you know, you see that uh, uh, quite a bit in NIMBYism, right, where, where someone says, no, I don't want that affordable housing project near me. Well, it's, it's a beautifully well-built project. Yeah, I just don't want those people here. Right, and then you come up with different excuses about, um, 
you know, traffic or parking or whatever the case may be, even though a lot of those issues can be mitigated and are mitigated through the process. So it, it, it's something that, um, you know, it, it is, is unfortunately institutional, systematic. Um, it, it's very similar to what happens in fair housing, where you can have uh, not only covert issues, but there are overt issues, right? We want to we want to make meaningful strides to to replace, you know, economic and racial segregation housing patterns when it comes to fair housing. We want to promote balanced living patterns. We want people to have a fair shape in our community. And the Section 8 voucher is designed to allow people to choose where they want to live. And if that is being restricted, if, if yeah, you can choose where you want to live, but guess what? You can really only live in these areas that are accepting the voucher um, because areas that are in good schools, areas that have are in good neighborhoods, um, are, are, are refusing to accept it, um, you know, that becomes a problem. And we're not saying in the source of income discrimination world or that, that housing voucher policy that, that you, you, if you decide as a property owner that you don't want to participate in the program, that's fine. But don't come to the housing trust and say, hey, we want your tax exemption. Or, hey, we want your loan at 0%, or we want a grant, and then we're not going to be part of the solution. That is what we are trying to achieve with the source of income policy. So the Upton is one of your uh, developments, correct? Mm -hmm. It looks like a two-bedroom can go for $1,800. Um, that's a lot of money. So Section 8 is going to say, let's. I'm making up numbers. Uh, provide support of $800. So now someone gets to live uh, in a very nice apartment and only and is able to afford it at $1,000 because of this accommodation through the Section 8 vouchers. That makes it affordable to them. But not it's exactly. just the Okay, explain it. Go for it. Yeah, not exactly. So the, the Section 8 voucher program has, uh, has limits, rent limits, on, um, on, on the unit. Right. So even though uh, a, an apartment complex, let's say, says, yes, we accept Section 8, do you have actual eligible units for the program? So how it works in the Section 8 program is HUD sets what's called fair market rent. And the unit has to be below, at or below that fair market rent for that unit to become available. So the, the source of income discrimination policy and effort that you see going around are, are just half of the solution. The other half of the solution is we have to start building housing that is affordable, that is below the fair market rent line, so they can be eligible for the Section 8 program. So a unit at $1,800 um, would likely not be eligible for that particular voucher program. How do we get to more eligible units? That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a wonderful question. So, you know, typically in, in housing finance, right, you have debt plus your equity um, is how you finance the project. You know, construction costs, which are skyrocketing right now, are making it very difficult for projects to pencil, right? Projects have to uh, make enough money to pay off their debt, to pay off their equity, 
based on those market conditions and market terms. And that's how you get market rate housing. When you're looking at affordable housing, something has to give somewhere, right? You either have to lower construction costs, which that's very difficult to do, right? The cost of building 300 units is the same whether or similar whether it's affordable or not affordable product. Um, or you have to get capital that's cheaper. Right now, you can get debt that is 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 very inexpensive, right? That that's 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 wonderful. But in the private equity market, private equity is normally requesting a very significant and substantial return. Now, programs like the low income housing tax credit program will offer that equity at no return requirement. You do not have to. It's essentially a grant into the project. So instead of having you know. $15 million in equity from the private market that needs to be repaid at a 15% IRR, um, you know, you can get tax credit equity for free that doesn't require that repayment. Thus, you're able to get lower uh, uh, rent out of the project. The problem is the tax credit program has its limitations as well. You know, the tax credit program is competitive. Um, there is a backlog of, of bonds with respect to uh, the number of projects that are just waiting in line just to receive bonds in order to, to participate in the program. Uh, when you're talking about the scalability of how much affordable housing we need, we need other solutions that are going to provide low-cost capital to be able to achieve the lower AMI bands and rents that we need to support our community. So that means vote yes on Prop A, right? Let, let's figure out a way that we can decide as a community um, if affordable housing is something that we want to invest in, right? How can we use a, a, a local source rather than a, a state or federal source to help uh, create more affordable housing units in our community? And is the bond uh, uh, an avenue for that? Maybe, you know, that's up to the community side. That's, that's why we're going through a process to strategically plan out how we can uh, uh, do this while addressing all the outcomes that we need in our community. We need more tools in our toolbox. We need more low-cost capital uh, to come into our community so we can achieve what we need to achieve. It's a lot. And yeah. I think it, going back to the idea of the source of income, discrimination and in the new protection clause if the properties aren't even within that range of hud guidelines for below ami i mean wouldn't the the properties already be priced out of somebody who needed section 8 so is it you, you kind of mentioned that it's not seen and and it's it's overt it's almost an unconscious bias how do you get across that this is something that needs protection and it's not just a matter of the market i mean given covid you know, the cost of rent is, is so high and everything's gone up. Is it just that's the cost it takes to live in a community in San Antonio, rental, which is something that we need to address, right? Like that, And I think that's one of the charges of the major's, mayor's housing task force. How do we make sure we keep our, our, our housing affordable? But it's not discrimination. It's just San Antonio's turning into Austin that it's just so expensive. Right. We're kind of getting into the economics of, of housing, right? You know, it, and, um, and, and let me kind of touch on that a little bit. You know, while, while our affordable housing practitioner, industry folks, community advocates, 
we, you know, we, we place flashlights on the issues, um, you know, pre-pandemic, right? But the pandemic has really kind of shown, I mean, a freaking sun-burning beam of light on the issues of housing inequities um, and our critical housing needs in our community, right? The public at large kind of sees this more. You know, there's been an economic drop that, that occurred as a result of the pandemic, which, which has started impacting folks who are not on the economic fringes, right, but who are obviously impacted. Households who thought they were just going to be okay. They, they, they thought pre-pandemic, hey, I'm doing all right. Things are going okay for me. Uh, I, you know, I'm not uh, uh, the, the typical low-income housing uh, uh, family. I, I'm getting by, right? That, that's a lot of folks in San Antonio. And the COVID pandemic really turned that around. You have people that were impacted um, that did not think that they were really touchable, right? That they were that they were on that fringe. So it's really exposing the fact that large uh, members of our population. Um, um, are, are, are susceptible to economic changes, uh, that the pandemic showed. Um, you know, and, and it's not just the families, uh, that were suffering. We also had landlords that were starting to default, right? I mean, folks weren't able to make their rent, which means landlords, uh, uh, not just the big guys, we're talking about the small, uh, uh, the, the little guys and little gals who have their nest eggs and their rental properties, they were feeling the pressure too. I mean, it was a serious housing crisis that that expanded to hit the ever-shrinking middle America, right? And and when it comes to, to tenant selection, you know, what do we do with the large segment of our population um, that are are were at risk or at risk of, of having an eviction on the record, right? How are they going to get rehoused? Uh, once they were evicted. We were in a pandemic. How were they going to be rehoused in the future with an eviction on their record? How are they going to stay safe? Something had to be done, right? Government intervention was necessary to place moratoriums on evictions and provide relief to residents and owners. Locally, the city and public officials stepped up and created one of the largest eviction foreclosure prevention programs in the country. And fundamentally, this helped folks they housed. It provided also a revenue stream for those small landlords who were like, I, I'm hurting too, right? That couldn't get their hands on, on the, the, the TPP loans because they were getting gobbled up by larger folks. So, you know, with, from the housing trust standpoint, you know, the, the tenant protection policies that we place, um, uh, we, we place COVID, uh, a COVID-related eviction look-back provision that kind of prevents our future property uh, uh, partners from denying tenants solely based on the non-payment of rent that occurred during the COVID crisis, right? That occurred during the public emergency. And it, it was the right thing to do. And, and with source of income discrimination, with these types of protections that are in place, I think it's important that we are trying to do the right thing when it comes to, you know, uh, uh, respecting um, our tenants here in, in San Antonio. We, we have, a, I think, a long way to go. I hope people follow suit. Um, I think there is a lot of discussion that needs to be had with respect to how we can help tenants find housing, not be penalized for issues like the economic cliff that we had with COVID. 
um, how we can help them find housing with the vouchers that they have, um, especially if you're coming to the city or to the housing trust and saying, you know, give me money for my for my development. Um, you know, we want you to have that open access. And 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 honestly enough, a lot of the the programs that we already work with through the housing trust and the city are already receiving federal dollars. They're already receiving tax credits, and they're already required to accept the Section 8 voucher, right? So it's not like we're asking a huge swath of new developers to start taking on the program. What we're doing is is ensuring that anybody that we work with in the future helps contribute to finding a solution to greater access for folks who are holding onto these vouchers. They need to be able to have access anywhere in San Antonio to live that is convenient and helpful to them to raise their families. That's all we're asking for. You know, when we think of fair housing, um, you and I, before we, we started recording, we um, figured out that we actually live close in the same neighborhood, even though we never knew. Uh, in the Jefferson area and you know one of the things my parents did is they moved us um, to the northwest side because they wanted us to get a good education they wanted us to um, move out of you know where we were and uh, give me opportunity that's that's fair housing right like that's what we're talking about we're talking about giving people the opportunity to have a better life own something um, that helps them grow up better, their children become great, uh, you know, better contributors to the community, that's fair housing. That's right. I, I you know, when, when, when I look to where, where my parents grew up, um, and they did the, like I said, they did the exact same thing. They moved. And, uh, when, when my dad moved out of the house and married my mom, they ended up getting a house over the Northwest side, sent me to St. Paul's Catholic school, um, Antonian, um, they, they wanted the best for me. Right. Luckily, they had uh, decent paying jobs, decent paying wages to be able to buy that home on the northwest side that allowed us to have the opportunity, even though they struggled immensely, uh, to have the opportunity for us to be able to be better than than that. Right. They wanted us to, 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 to grow into something more. And, you know, that is the spirit behind the source of income discrimination policies. We need to give folks greater access to good quality schools, greater access to better neighborhood amenities, um, and, and better access in general to, to transportation so they can live close to their jobs. I mean, these are these are, are things that are fundamental that we sometimes take for granted, um, but there are people really struggling to find that type of quality housing um, that'll fit within their budget. There are issues like daycare. There's issues like food strains. You're having to decide between, you know, healthcare and, and medical costs and, and buying shoes for your kids to be able to send them to school. I mean, people are facing these day in and day out. And, and we, in, in our housing community development world, right, in, in our affordable housing development world, are always looking for how we can do better. Right, and we can. There is room for our industry to do better. And um, you know, I'm proud to say I'm happy to be in this industry, even though I pull my hair out, you know, uh, on a weekly basis on, on different types of things and challenges. Um, 
but people should know that we are we are here to help and, and we're doing the best that we can. Everybody in this industry is. From the from from the property managers who work with us every day to the community advocates who are on the streets, you know, protesting what, what they feel is right. Um, everybody cares. They do. And um, I think people in general just need to know that. Pete, I want to finish us on that great note, and I want to thank you for talking with me today and sharing with us the work of your organization is doing to help contribute to the San Antonio community. Thank you very much. Yep, thank you. I appreciate the time. Thanks for listening to Get Real. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes and share us with your friends on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. More information on this episode can be found at saver.com slash get real. Until next time.